0: Welcome back, everybody. It's Jack Graham and John Peterson with number 90. This is edition number 90 of We Talk Photo. Uh, and, you know, we were just talking with our really great guest today for a second, and we said we don't talk about a lot of gear, if any, and we kind of just have an open conversation, as most of you know that have listened, about, you know, different things, creativity, where we're going, who's doing what, that kind of thing. So thank you all for making some time out of your day to listen to us uh, again. Again, number 90. We have 10 more, and then we have a. We'll probably should have a big party here.
1: We should. We should. You know, it seems like we should have more than that, Jack. You know, we've been doing this for a while now. But, you know, well, we you figure we quality you over quantity.
0: 90, 90, we did, you know, if you figure every episode's about almost an hour. That's 90 hours. Yeah, that's like, uh, like almost a week, you know. That's like a, it's a long time out of our lives, but it's it's good. It's <laughs> fun. It's fun. But anyhow, without further ado, you know, um, in, the, in the past few weeks, we've had some really, really um, interesting guests with us that have talked about some great aspects of photography. Um, people who think as much as they press shutters down. And um we have one today that uh I think is at the very top of the pile. And it's a funny thing in the business that we're in or the life that we're in, we all kind of know each other. And though we don't talk every day, we know what each other's doing and we know who's doing good things and who's not. And today, our guest today is one of the really, really good people as well as a great photographer, Mr. Chuck Kimmerley. And Chuck just moved from New York City, population what? New York City, whatever. To Independence, California. Chuck, you're live and in person from Independence. I think you're the first pe- person we've interviewed from Independence,
2: California. <laughs> well, I think there's only only a couple hundred of us.
0: Yeah, how many what's the population then? Or
2: I, I think it's like seven hundred.
0: Yeah. I didn't know it was that For those of you who don't don't know, Independence is on Highway 395, and it is south of Bishop, um, kind of uh, not far from the turnoff to the the, uh, uh, White Mountains up there where all the bristlecone pine are. It's a beautiful area. I hope it's not growing. Chuck, thank you so much for being here.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: So, you know, we, we normally do this, and I know some people, uh, you know, the, kind of it's like wearing a name tag, It's hello, my name is. But could you give everybody a, uh, you know, a, uh, no more than a two-hour dissertation on who you are and what you do?
2: <laughs> From birth or just the last few years? You
0: can tell we're very serious <laughs> here. <laughs>
2: um, well, I was born and raised in Minnesota, Um and went in the army after high school because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And for high school graduation, I got a camera, what I asked for. Actually, I wanted one of those little, really cool 110 cameras that were real popular in the eighties, late seventies. But my dad thought better, got me a real camera. And and um, so I just sort of really got into photography. and mostly tourist stuff at first while I was in, in Germany, but really became sort of addicted to it and got my degree in photographic engineering technology in Minnesota. Yeah. So mostly that was, had to do with, you know, um, uh, a lot of photographic sensitometry and chemistry characteristic curves, Everything everything technical for the most part, very little creative, but it gave me a really great foundation. And after that, I got a job at the school, during that, at the school newspaper, then started working at real newspapers where I stayed for almost 20 years, then worked at a university, and now I do fine art landscapes. Although they're not the kind of landscapes most people will think of when they hear the word. Yeah, so- I, I, you know, I
0: look, I, obviously, I know your work and you're right. And, the, you know, the highest compliment one could get paid by others is, boy, that's a Chuck Kimberly photograph. And you know, over the years, I, I, I mean, you you have a you have a very unique style and I I, I uh, we're gonna put your links up to your website and stuff on the show notes here, but it's uh, Chuck Kimmerly that's K I M M double M Chuck K I M M E R L E dot com and please everyone when you're listening to this look at Chuck's galleries and I think you'll agree.
1: One of yeah. the eight, Chuck, you know, if, if you could elaborate a little bit on why your landscapes or why your style doesn't fit the word landscape, yet you identify them as landscapes.
2: Um, well, especially nowadays, landscape photography is sort of a bubble. And it's, I think, a fairly tightly defined bubble of what we consider landscape slash nature photography. And most of it is it has to be has to be positive, has to be a celebration of nature, not all of it. But while I don't miss my photojournalistic roots, they're definitely inspiring and sort of guiding the work that I do now because I, I try to create work that, that either tells a story or even better sort of encourages the reader to ask questions. So a lot of what I do I throw in man-made elements, not always. Um, But I like to have man-made elements because I think it, it's, it's the reality we face today. There's very little true nature out there. Probably, probably none at all. Outside of maybe about 20 square feet in the Amazon, everything in the world is, has been, uh, has been trampled or somehow changed. So, I tend not to do pretty, um, you could even say not positive, although I don't think it's negative. I do a lot of photographs of, of animal carcasses or bones that I find. And I don't, and people have said that makes them sad. But to me, it's just a a, a cycle of life is just one extra journey. And, and I think I'm paying a bit of an homage to them by photographing them. Yeah
1: yeah i like that that makes sense let me one of the lines off your uh your your bio on your website was really uh poignant for me and it says i react very strongly to the juxtapositions near the confluences of where nature and man coexist or collide and i think that to, to me that sums up a lot of your work it's uh it's showing that the influence of man in a natural landscape
2: yeah and and a lot of times there's a a coexistence and a lot of times it's a collision one's gonna win one's gonna lose um sadly i think man wins more often than he loses at least in the short term yes in the long term we all know who will win jack yeah
0: yeah, I, 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 I mute. Yeah, I mute, I mute my microphone because my chair squeaks, John.
1: Well, quit moving. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's
0: pay attention. Yeah, but when you're 110 years old, you you got to stay moving. That's,
2: I that's, thought those were. I thought that noise was your knees.
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But you know, it's, it's, Chuck. You know, again, you know, I, I see a lot of. Um, I see a lot of. I won't say underexposure used, but it seems like you know, you're, you're like, where well, you have your favorite print areas. There's prints that are either really high key or really kind of low key. And it, it's a great style. I mean, it really is. And, 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 uh, it, and it's just something, something, you know, very different. We've had some uh, we've had Cole Thompson on and some other people who shoot predominantly in, in, uh, in monochrome. I call it monochrome gray. Uh, I'm not a big, big fan of black and white, but guess people like that. But, um, you know, style is a great, a great thing. But you had your background in stuff that was really different than what we see on your website. You came from a photojournalist background. Yep. And, and you know, you, there's not a whole lot of minimalist stuff in there, usually. Though maybe there ought to be more, I don't know. But um, everything seems to be that I see anymore, or used to see when they were real photojournalists, which is another podcast for another time. Uh, uh, you know, um, it's it's busy busy stuff, you know. And is is your work now a result of of just having enough of that and trying to get away from busy busy photographs or?
2: Yeah, I think it's not just that, but uh, even though I, I I photograph people, the people aren't there. They're, you know, the man-made objects are there. So I don't do people anymore. Uh, photo gentleman, is mostly color, so I don't do color in it anymore. So a lot of what I do now is almost opposite. You know, maybe even compositionally, although I've always been sort of, you know, into simplistic uh, compositions and not making things overly complicated. So a lot of what I do now is is to get away from my past life as a photojournalist.
0: Do you do you I mean you're you're not up in North Dakota or Minnesota or the upper upper plains anymore. You're down in you know, central eastern California, which is a kind of a similar area in a lot of ways. There's a lot of open space down there. Um, you're not going to have the wheat fields that you had up, in, up where you were, but, um, I, I, it, it, I, you know, I, I, I know why you moved there. Uh, it certainly wasn't for, um, to, to try to emulate where you came from, but you see your resemblance in your locations
2: um on a certain level yes but we're in a fairly deep valley right here in Owens Valley and if I'm not mistaken it's one of the deepest valleys in the world because our peaks are going up almost 10,000 feet above us and in North Dakota the peaks rose maybe 8 inches yeah so I really cut my teeth in the the Northern Plains where there was no real distant horizon to speak of because it just sort of faded off into a flat horizon line. Where here, everything you shoot, no matter what direction, is going to have a mountain behind it. So it's actually quite different. The the landscape itself, you can replace sagebrush and saltbrush and, and rabbitbrush with you, know, you can trade that for wheat fields, so that's fairly similar. Uh, the topography of the valley itself is pretty flat, but the mountains really change how everything works, how I how I have to react to everything. Because in the evening, we don't get late evening light here because the sun is gone forty five minutes before actual. It would well before I guess whatever sundown that is where it goes over the curve of the earth. Mm -hmm. So I have to worry about sun on the mountains early when I am looking to the west. And when I'm looking to the east, I have to worry about sun on the mountains late. So I don't get a lot of the same light. And that's actually probably the biggest difference is, is the light is so different here.
0: The light is amazing there and that's one of the reasons you know going back to you know Gale, you know gail and gail and Raul moved from you know berkeley to bishop because of the light that was that was either that or he spent so much time over there it was a lot easier to live there than it was living in berkeley maybe but um you know it's it's one of the most amazing light areas we we um you know we used to run workshops out there and I haven't been out there in a while we're going to run another one next year finally after a number of years, but man, when the light's good out there it's just it's just it's just amazing the east end, we call it the east side you know it's just it's just yeah. it's amazing you know and and uh, you know w- w- let's let's just go back a little bit um Chuck, into your Florida journalism days mm. and, and you know and and the pressures of that. We, like i said before we start recording we we've had Billy weeks on and um and a, and a couple other people who dealt with photojournalism in their careers and it's it's an interesting interesting uh uh transition from that into what you're doing now It just let's could you talk about that briefly um like how so? Well, you know, um, I, I I know that you were deep into that. In fact, you, you won't say it, so I'll say it. Um, you were a finalist for a Pulitzer.
2: Uh, yeah, and the staff was.
0: Yeah, um, that's something to be amazingly proud of.
2: It is, but it's not like Jack, you know, Jack Kinga actually, you know, won one all by himself. Um ours was a staff of four covering a ma- major news event and it was the flooding of the Red River Valley back in, was it 86, I think, 96? had to be, see. 90- I had to be nine, 96, I think, um, or 97, maybe 97. You'd think I'd remember this since I lived through it because when it happened, I got uh, couldn't get back home so I slept on the church floor for a week, putting a paper out and then, um, Then they put me up in a little tiny 15-foot trailer for another two weeks till i could finally get home but the newspaper the grand forks sale actually won the pulitzer for public service because despite the fact our, our entire building burned down lost all my gear the flood came something shorted out the entire block of downtown burned down including our building and our press and yet we didn't miss a day of publication. Wow. And that, that was, that was maybe the most intense thing I've ever covered, except for maybe a Super Bowl, because if you've ever been to one, it is, it's intense, you know, solid through, you can't even hear yourself talk. But this was over a period of, of a number of weeks and helicopters are flying overhead, sirens are going off continually, not just, fire engines and police cars but but um, the civil civil defense sirens are going off. It's like a war zone without all the booms. And and it was that event that sort of made me think that it's time to get out of journalism, photojournalism, because I honestly didn't enjoy it like I would have when I was younger. <laughs> really in my heart, I wanted to help people. I wanted to go out and sandbag. I wanted to rescue people stuck in their homes. And all I had was a camera driving around taking pictures. And I felt, even though it was important, I I just felt like it probably at the time maybe wasn't the most important thing I could have been doing. So it just, it felt very shallow to me at the time. And, And you know, it's not fun anymore. It's a, it takes a certain kind of a person to be a photojournalist and do it the entire lives. Most people get out kind of early. And why Why is that, Chuck? Um, basically, you're on seven days a week, even though you have a schedule. You're always listening for news. There's always something. When I was in Pittsburgh it was my day off or, or actually, no, I just gotten home from work maybe two hours earlier. And I think it was flight 427 of a, a Boeing. I forget what plane it was, but it crashed in Pittsburgh. Everybody dead. And um, then you get called up and you have to go out and cover something like that. And it's really difficult for, I think, I think maybe I'm a little too sensitive to do it, but it's, a, it's difficult for people who are maybe a little more sensitive to cover something like that because you just feel you're not doing anything. You're not at the time contributing much, even though it's important in a way. Um, it's important maybe the next day for the readers who are going to read what you're doing. But when you're standing around a bunch of first responders who have been on scene and who are crushed and who are out there working, you know, working as a photojournalist just made me feel kind of small, like I was taking advantage of the situation. That was a big thing, <clears throat> because instead of instead of maybe working with and being fully accepted into whatever I was doing, I was often the peeping Tom, the guy outside, not necessarily unwelcome, but not welcome. And that, that gets to you after a while. Yeah when there's always, you know, unspoken or spoken confrontation when you're at an event.
1: Yeah, I can, I can imagine. Let's, let me ask you real quick about storytelling. And, you know, I, as a photojournalist, of course, that's a big part of your job, is capturing the emotion and the story of whatever event you're covering. How does that translate into the work that you do today, storytelling? And how do you go about doing
2: it? Um, photojournalism is a little more literal or objective, of course, because you know you're supposed to take the middle of the road and despite all of the talk about the lamestream media and and everything right now, people not trusting the media ninety nine percent of the people ninety nine and a half percent um are trying to do a job staying middle of the road Uh, Being honest reporting doing honest reporting, but it's very difficult when you're a human and we all have our biases everybody Whether you're conservative or liberal or or environmental or industrial You're gonna have a bias no matter how much you try to stay in the middle You're never going to be able to walk that tightrope perfectly. It just isn't gonna happen because we're all sort of You know, we're all fallible. So you're supposed to say literal and objective as, as humanly possible, but <clears throat> with with the fine art landscapes that I'm doing, I can be more subjective and create pictures that are more um, metaphorical, yet still have a, a basic truth to them. But I can I can approach it photojournalistically in a way to try to tell a story. But I'm not constrained by the photojournalistic ethics. And I can actually be more creative. And one of the, one of the things we always ask ourselves as photojournalists, I don't know, maybe they still do, is whether you're an artist first or a journalist first. And I always chose artist, which was probably the wrong answer. But to me, the more creative work I could do still within the confines of photojournalistic ethics but the more creative work I could do the more attention I am going to give the issue because if you create a boring middle-of-the-road piece of art to run with a story people's eyes are gonna glaze over they're not gonna care and the photographs are often entries to the stories for the people it's first thing they do is look at the photo maybe read the caption and then they'll go into the story.
0: Or, or sell the paper. You know, yeah, but that, uh,
2: I, that was never my issue. I, I, was, I was, I don't want to say egotistical, but I was too worried about my own reputation and having people like what I do to worry about selling the paper. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that was a, you know, a side benefit, of course.
0: Yeah. You, you know, I, I know... I stay away from a lot of news these days, um, and I've totally, totally pulled out of social media. Totally. I haven't looked at social media in probably two or three years. And, you know, when I do see anything that has pictures of news or current oriented things, and I'm not trying to sound like, you know, the old days were the good days, but. You know, everybody's got a camera now and the news organizations are using a lot of, you know, iPhone shots that, you know, walking around people are sending in. And when you see a great, um, a great photograph from someone who worked like or works like you worked or, or Jack Tikinga or Billy or some of these other people that I know. Boy, it really sticks out these days, you know. Um, you really say, "Wow, that's a great photograph." And typically, it's someone who knows what they're doing. There's so much, so much stuff around now that you know everybody's got a camera. You know, and there's so much stuff that people are getting. You know, every time you see something, they said, "Send us your pictures, and we'll put them up on the news and all this." You know, the quality of the work has gone down. I, I personally, you know, can you can you imagine having like a kid? It wants to go to college and study photojournalism anymore. It's almost, almost a you know kind of a dead, a dead thing. I guess the papers are getting rid of their staffs, and it's really a shame. It's it's, a, it's kind of going away, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, going away quickly. I, uh, one of the, one of the photographers I gave it its very first job to, um, hired him when I was out working in Pennsylvania. He ended up at the Newark Star-Ledger, which is, in New Jersey, one of the largest papers in the country. His photo staff at the time was something like 50, 60, 70 photographers. And by the time he finally got cut up in a round of layoffs, and what they actually did is transfer him instead of lay him off, they were down to less than a dozen. Wow. <clears throat> and reporters now were all given cell phones. And it is too bad because photojournalism is – is a creative art into itself, even though like I said, there are ethical standards and boundaries. But it's not something just anybody can do when they have a camera. But I guess That's you cool. can you can say that about landscape photography as well.
0: Well, a lot of people think they can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> until they try to do it. And I think everything you know, I have a I have a background in music, Chuck, and people ask me all the time, what's the hardest instrument to play? My answer is they're all hard. So you know any aspect of what we're what people are trying to do with photography, it's all hard to do really well. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not like YouTube, man. It's not you can't Google it. You got to work at it. You got to learn it. You mm-hmm. know. And
2: well, unlike a musical instrument, a camera
0: is really easy to operate. Right. Well, I don't know about that. Somebody just—I only had three valves to push down. <laughs>
2: Yeah, but we only got one button. You have a button on yours? You have a button on yours? I have a place? button. There's still a oh, on the cameras.
0: Okay. Well, I had to look at, I, I had to drag a camera out one of these days. Hey, uh, you know, the one thing I really wanted to ask you is that you were an artist in residence at like four or five national parks.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss them. I'm gonna just going to guess here. Zion was one, Joshua Tree. Uh, glacier and somebody else.
2: North Cascades.
0: North isn't North Cascades one of the most underrated national parks in the country.
2: Um yeah, I think so. I mean but it's because they moved they placed it so far away from a population center. Yeah. If they've taken North Cascades and placed it right next to Seattle, it'd be very popular.
0: Yeah, look at Rainier where I live. <laughs> Forget it. Yeah. I gotta, it's a it's a disaster. And, and now I hear they're going to start flying uh, scenic uh, flights around the mountain in Cessna 172s or something. That, that, would, that would be good. But anyway, any rate, um, so you did these artists in residence. What? And were they all the same or which part did you really enjoy and for what reason?
2: They're all basically the same. They all gave me uh, about 30 days living inside the park in park housing in zion i was in the first original building a sandstone building the first building ever built in the park used to be the visitor center in glacier i was in a log cabin literal spitting distance from the lake nine out of ten times anyway um in joshua tree i was in a house off grid Big water tank behind me, solar panels all over the roofs. And in North Cascades, there was a bit of a mix up. So instead of getting my own house, I stayed in a firefighter's quarters because it wasn't fire season. So that that was I mean, it's still cool. <clears throat> but basically. They let me do what I want. I can do anything I want. I can photograph anything. I mean, I can't. I still have the rules, the park rules. I can't go where it's off limits. I can't take stuff, move stuff, destroy stuff, of course. But I essentially am just free to go about my business. It's very very liberating, but it's also very difficult because we're all used to photographing for maybe a full day, a couple of full days, maybe we go off with some friends for a week and we'll photograph and then meet back together. But when you have 30 days by yourself and each one of these places is remote, I never once had cell service, radio signal, television, anything in the cabins I was in. So when my day was done and I got back, I only had myself to hang out with and I can be very annoying even today, <laughs> but you're kind of, it gives you the opportunity to not just photograph continually, but to think about it, to contemplate it, to plan it. And it gets, it gets really intense. The aloneness is great, but everybody I talked to has the same thing after a couple of weeks that being alone turns into being lonely and you have to work through that which can be creatively stifling if you're not careful. But they were they were amazing experiences. They were very in, very intense despite being alone because you don't have every someone to share with all the time like you would if you're going out with a group.
0: Which which part did you have your um, it's probably a dumb question, but is there one one of the four that you <laughs> or not to offend the other three?
2: Um, Well, Zion was my first, and that was a wonderful experience, but it was my first time in that sort of environment. So I learned as I went, and I didn't necessarily create my best work because it was all so new to me. What time of the year were you there? Late fall. So I was there for the first two weeks. Buses were running after that. It was a free-for-all.
0: Yeah.
2: Um. Joshua Tree was great and and Glacier was great. I might have done my best work in Glacier, but I think I had my most fun in North Cascades because I was in the town of Stehekin, which is far yes. south of the park, separated from the main part of the park by by a mountain range. That's uh that's right across Lake Chelan, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. 50 so I had to give a credit card number to the grocery store and i could use the town's satellite phone because it was actually a little community mostly park people but also a number of people who just live there so they had a public public uh, satellite phone and i would call up and order groceries and then they would come in on the ferry the next day <clears throat> that was that was really interesting because i Tried to pack food for 30 days, but that's very difficult because the cookies go very, very fast. Yeah. I think I had cookies for a month, and they are probably gone in five days. The pizzas were gone very quickly, so I had to re- replenish my supply. But it was a wonderful experience because I did not have the distractions that I had in the other park where maybe I could get in my car. And drive half an hour, 45 minutes to a town to go shopping or see people. In Stahican, I was just there. And the town at that time of year probably only had a dozen and a half people staying there. Well, wow. And some of the locals are a little, I don't want to say eccentric, but they were eccentric. Colorful. Colorful. There you go. And they, you know, I was a temporary guy. There wasn't going to be a relationship built with them. And there's a bakery there, a wonderful bakery. They have wonderful pizza. That closed down for the season after I was there a week and a half. But what I loved about Stahikin was it was actually a community. So I could go around and photograph human elements that that were much more rare in some of the other parks. Like Staheekin, everybody has a car who lives there and the cars are normally stored in this parking lot near the ferry. Well, some of these cars have been there for like 50 years. Some of them have duct tape protecting the windows from rain. So some of them haven't been operating in 20 years. So I had a lot of fun shooting the sort of vestiges of what limited life was there. And it was it was very enjoyable.
1: <clears throat> so, Chuck, let me, let me ask you about these Artists in Residence programs. Do, are you mm-hmm. indebted to the Park Service for any productivity, any, any prints, or is it just uh, something that they make available to artists with no
2: obligation? No, the obligation is that I had to give them one photograph. And not just the photograph, but the photograph and all rights. And it has to do with a government law from many, many years ago that says any piece of artwork that goes into the collection of the United States has to come with all rights assigned to it. <clears throat> I think it helps protect them if it's used inappropriately by a third party. So I had to give them a photograph. I had to give them a selection they could choose from, but they never got the A-plus selections. Yeah, I gave not. them anywhere from A-minus to B-plus. So, they did, you know, I didn't give them my best work, absolute best, but at the same time, I, I didn't give them anything near my worst.
1: Yeah, uh, that's cool. Let me, let me just ask you real quick, because you do so much work in monochrome was that a conscious choice when you started down this road, or was it something just sort of evolved as you transitioned
2: out of photojournalism? When I started in photojournalism, we carried, we, we loaded our own film, not, not color film, not chrome, so we loaded our own black and white. So we had a tin of, an empty tin that we put both black and white and chrome film cassettes in and depending on the assignment we would shoot color black and white and in my first paper we only had color outsides insides were all black and white and like they mostly are and depending on where we thought maybe a random feature picture might go we would shoot either color black and white well i almost always shot black and white and there were many times they would say you get a good picture? I go, yep, I got a good feature. You go, great, we need it for the cover. I'm like, yeah, it's not going to happen to <laughs> the shot in black and white. <clears throat> and I got in a lot of trouble for that. And my boss at the time, when I would do something that was inappropriate, and that was far more often than I care to admit, he would write it on a Post-it note and put it in a file in his desk. And about once a month, I would go on his desk and I would look through those and remove the inappropriate ones. And a lot of those were shot black and white again. But honestly, that's, that's kind of how I saw things and what I preferred to shoot. So black and white actually carries for me way, way, way back, way back into my earliest career. Nice
1: yeah i think you know in terms of storytelling i find i find black and white to be far a far better medium than color just because color can be so distracting from the story that you're trying to
2: tell um oftentimes go ahead i said if it's done right it can be just powerful if it's done right yeah but same thing with black and white it still has to be done right to work i think it's you know, I hear a lot about color as a distraction, and for me personally, I don't really even see the color when I'm photographing something. And and while I admit there are times color can be a distraction, it could also be the, the the best way to actually convey convey a message. True. So I don't really, you know, color can be a distraction, but just like black and white, it has to be done right. Black and white can be a distraction too. Oh, it does.
1: It does. You know, you know, I think where I'm coming from, too, a little bit is, is in today's world, you see so many quote-unquote popular photographs that all they are are a, uh, an explosion of color. And, and compositionally and artistically, they don't have a lot of merit, just an explosion of color.
2: Well, that's why with all my black and white photos, I actually take the hue and saturation slider all the way to the right. Because I want that little extra oomph. You know it's a joke, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you to check it.
1: <laughs> yes, of course.
2: Interesting. He's got a little extra saturated black and white. <laughs>
1: yeah. Outstanding. So what, what is it when you're out... Because your you're gallery... Just scrolling through your gallery. And folks, I encourage everybody to go out and look at Chuck's images. They're just... They're amazingly, po- poignant strong. is a word that comes to mind for me. But it's the the tonalities, the really rich blacks that you have, the stories that you tell within them. They're um, they're captivating. Thank you. Yeah, uh, outstanding, Jack. You've been quiet lately.
0: Simple, simple and strong. Yes, you know. Simple and strong, you know. I um, I I I, I just was just remembering that you're doing um, a couple events with Michael Gordon. Am I correct? Yes. Michael's a a good friend and uh, and another really great monochrome photographer. Um, You know, when we do these podcasts, Chuck, and this is your first, and we want you to come back. Is there anything with Michael that you have coming up that you'd like to talk about that our people might be interested in? Well, we are going to on your own, or on your own, by the way.
2: No, I don't like teaching on my own. To be honest, I I I don't think students get a real fair shake when there's only one instructor giving giving one opinion. Mm -hmm. So I, I I much prefer to teach with someone else at a workshop. But we have a workshop in Death Valley in November that is currently full and a second one in March that is getting very close. And we're dedicating these exclusively to black and white right now
1: mm-hmm.
2: in Death Valley. And as you know, Michael probably is more knowledgeable about Death Valley you than most it? of the rangers who, who work out there.
0: You know, he knows the history of every rock down
2: there. And its name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you every every. He's really good about the. Um, the. Uh, what um, the technical names of all the plants and. Yeah. And the first names of all the rocks.
0: Yeah, no, he's 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 the best. <laughs> That's one of the reasons that man, I, I used to run workshops down there, and after after seeing what Michael does. I mean, I could never, never come close to that. So I stay out of there. I'll leave it to Michael and you guys.
2: Well, if you can't beat them, join them.
0: Well, uh, no, nah, I can't. I only want to do that. You guys are too good. But um, so that's coming up. Uh, what do you, you know, what are you doing? I know. How long have you been in independence now? It's been a short time.
2: Well, we were here four months over the winter while my wife had her job. Yeah. Um, as superintendent of man's in our national historic site. Uh She had a, she had a, uh, she was a temporary superintendent. And then as we were driving home, they offered her the job full time. So we have been out here since June. June. And, and, and are are you, are you doing any individual
0: workshops or anything that people that might want to, you know do anything with you should know about
2: well i've got a couple of um i'm i have some private workshops coming up but nothing nothing public yet i still have to get my feet grounded here yeah it's a really wonderful place for photographers but it's got such a wonderful history that it's also intimidating
0: it is it's big i mean it's a big area you know people think it's just mono Lake you know or or or, or Bristlecone. and you know they never see you know the other aspects of the Owens Valley I mean there's miles and miles of areas where the river comes through and just just
2: it's huge fast it's yeah, and it's beautiful, but it's a little over two hours i think from from the Alabama hills up to Mono Lake. Mm-hmm. Yep. and so it's it's really vast, and a couple of the workshops that I'm doing privately, they want to cover the whole thing.
0: Yeah, we stopped doing it,
2: and it's there's a lot of driving involved. You really have to be be dedicated.
0: Well, you know, we uh, we used to start the Alabama Hills and, and end up in Lee Vining, and I just came to the conclusion that it's just it's too much i can't do it even halfway right in three and a half days i you just can't cover that amount of ground and so we just do a little bit in bishop and then we go up to lee mining and leave it at that you know and it's it's a huge area and for people who don't know that east side of the sierra man it's it's something that every every photographer what it's not an easy place to get to you know you from Reno, you're what four hours or so, five mm-hmm. hours. Yeah, you know, from from Las Vegas, you're probably about the same. Um, LAX, you're probably a little longer. It's 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 not you know you don't it's a destination. It's not some place you just drive through, unless you're coming down three ninety five for some reason. But it's a great area, and, and and I think you're gonna really really like it there. Um, I see a bunch of you know for those of you who don't know how we do this, we're recording this on Zoom. But being as it's a podcast, um, it's just audio, but we can see each other. I see a bunch of prints and a, and a new printer in the background. Um, are you
2: busy selling prints these days, Chuck? Not as busy as I would like to be, but who is? Yeah. yeah. But with a new printer, it becomes becomes a, a bit of a new excitement. It's a new toy you get to use a lot. Learning curve. Yeah, and, you know, every printer, even the same brand, they're just slightly different. But I've been printing a lot of my Manzanar work because I've been photographing there a lot. Your what? My work at Manzanar. Uh-huh. Yeah, you got to look at that gallery.
0: Do <clears throat> you get any access there? I guess it's open to everybody. you everybody. Yeah, it's see open to everybody. Anybody can't see?
2: No, no. Um, I get I get no special access.
0: Man, that would be part of the part of the lure.
2: To... <laughs> but everything's pretty much open anyways. Um, so it's a great place to photograph. And I realize Ansel did it a number of years ago, but he did it a lot differently than than I'm doing it and he did it also what 80 years ago. So yep. I don't really feel like I'm stepping on his toes.
0: Yeah. But this is again not a gear centric uh uh podcast, but before we bang things up here, what 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 are you are you
2: uh, what are you using to make your images predominantly? Um full frame DSLR. Mm-hmm. I like my cameras big and heavy. Another holdover from my younger photojournalism days when I carried three F3s around.
0: Yeah. That F3, I got to tell you, that was the best cold-weather photography camera ever made. That thing never froze up on me, ever. Non, you it. could, you could pound like,
2: in a 10-penny nail, and it wouldn't hurt the camera.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wish I saw <clears throat> But I'm sure I could find one relatively cheap. eBay. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, um, Chuck, it was great having you. I, you know, we keep, we were trying to do a series of, uh, you know, creative podcasts, creative subjective podcasts with uh guy and with Michael Alistair, uh, Colleen Minnick and a few other people. Um, that, that, and we can never, it's like herding cats. We never could get everybody in one spot, but we're going to do it one of these days and, and we wanna get you as part of that if you if you're around and you'd be willing to join us on that. And you know, and in the meantime, John, um you'll you'll get some stuff up on the website and everybody please do yourselves a favor. And um uh, you know, we don't we don't in any way recommend trying to emulate other photographers. It's just not a good way to to to, to be as a creative person. But you can learn from looking at other people's works, and I, you know, if you go to John's house, my house. I bet you, you too, Chuck, have a lot of books hanging around, and you know, we're 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 always trying to see what other people did, and and not to emulate them, but to kind of you know just appreciate what what's what's. What other people have done, get to Chuck's website and check it out. and I, and I'm, I have on my screen here right now that man's in our gallery, and you're right. It's very, very different from anything I've seen before. Uh, I'm going to take a look at this. We've got um, a few uh, hours on an airplane tomorrow, John. Yep. And hopefully, Alaska Airlines will have Wi Fi on the airplane. Hopefully. And uh, maybe. We'll see. The- we can we can do this. But anyway, uh, Chuck, thank you for being here. Um, enjoy Independence. Um, do you live in downtown Independence, or do you live in the
2: suburbs? <laughs> um, we are on the far west edge. So, so we're in the suburbs of Independence. Yeah, I
0: remember when somebody had a photo gallery of there in a gas station a long time ago. I can't remember who it was. It didn't last more than a year or two. Um, but you know, I know there's a Shell station there if I remember right, and mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, it's 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 kind of a holdover. So next time, next October, John, when we're in Independence, we should just get out of the car and yell "Chuck," yeah, and yeah. probably hear
2: us. Yeah, we have two gas stations now. We're we're wow. very metro. You do wow.
0: This is this is good and bad. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for being here. It's been been uh, too too long since we've we've um, not uh, had you here, but we appreciate you taking the time. John, I will see you in SeaTac yep. tomorrow, morning. tomorrow morning, bright and early, and off we go to Alaska. Safe yeah.
2: travels, gentlemen.
0: Yeah, Chuck, thank, thank you, you again. and um, and and John will post the stuff up here. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Uh, Again, for those of you who have any comments, questions, ideas, it's wetalkfoto at gmail.com. And uh, and I guess that puts a veil on things. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.
1: Thanks, guys. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.